Well, good morning. It is great to see all of you. It's great to see all of you children as well here this morning. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15. It is the psalm after Psalm 14, which uh, Josh preached on uh, last week, not yesterday. If you have your Bibles open and you're not sure where the psalms are, you can just hold them up by the spine and open it, and you'll probably end up in the psalms, right in the middle, and then flip over and find Psalm number 15. The Psalms, taken as a whole, are the hymn book of Israel. We've sung some wonderful hymns this morning, but the Psalm book was what the people of God in the Old Testament, when they gathered in order to worship on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, they would sing Psalms. And they remain a hymn book for the Christian life. And so in the Psalms, when we turn to them, we are actually finding songs that teach us how to live as believers. Psalm 15 is remarkable in that it actually tells us the exact question that it is trying to answer. And that question is, who gets to dwell with God? Who gets to be close with God? Who gets to be intimate with Him and experience His presence? As you might be feeling this morning, what does it take? What kind of person is the person that feels close to God and has not a whole lot to do with uh, a lot of the external things that allow us to get close to other people, but instead has to do with our character as we pursue God himself. And so let's read Psalm 15 together, starting in verse 1 all the way through. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly. And does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we have now read your word, we ask that your spirit would be at work in it. That the real power and the real glory and the real hope that we are finding is in your word by your spirit. And so help us by faith to receive it this morning. That you would speak through your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The last time I went to a wedding, I found myself complaining and lamenting about uh, that curious thing about weddings where you're expected to know the dress code, not by what they put on the invitation, but just by the time. Where a 4 o'clock wedding is very different than a 5 o'clock wedding, which is very different than a 6 o'clock wedding. And if you're ever invited to a 7.30 p.m. wedding, you need to go shopping or to men's warehouse or some really nice place. Because there's nothing in your closet that is nice enough for a 7.30 wedding. You could go and meet the Queen of England or go to a 7.30 wedding in the same attire. You have to intuit what is right and what is wrong. And I, for my whole life, have been very bad at this. I remember the time when I was interviewing uh, for college, and I walked in, and I saw somebody walking out in full coat and tie, and I looked down, and I had just like a very casual polo on. And immediately, I felt completely underdressed and out of the running. 
And you have probably had some moment in your life where you have walked into a room and you have felt underdressed or you have felt overdressed. And let me just tell you a secret. All of us have the same exact first response. If you walk into a room and everyone looks like they're dressed differently than you, I feel it, you feel it, and you think to yourself, should I just bail? Like, should I get out of here? Should I leave? Because I don't fit in with the people that are around me. I don't look good enough, or actually I stand out like a sore thumb because I'm looking a little bit too nice. We wonder all the time, we are asking ourselves, who belongs? If I'm in the presence of other people, do I belong with them? And we often are looking at the externals. And Psalm 15, in this wonderful hymn, David is asking, who belongs in the presence of God? Who belongs in the Lord's house? Who gets to actually dwell with God? It's a psalm about intimacy with God. It's a psalm about being in the presence of God. About experiencing proximity to him instead of seeing him as a holy, wrathful God against our sin, getting to experience him as a loving, steadfast father. And so David is asking the question, not do you look like you're wearing the right clothes, but he's saying who gets to be in God's presence? And it made sense for him to ask that. In the Old Testament... David here says, who shall sojourn in your tent? He's talking about the tabernacle. It would later be the temple. And so if you were an Israelite working in your farm on the field somewhere, you were in the presence of God wherever you go. You knew that God was everywhere. But also you knew that God set his presence in the temple in a really special way. Theologians have a very fancy term for this, um, where God would appear in the temple. They call it the special presence of God rather than the normal presence of God. Uh, very fancy term there for theologians. But what it means is that if you were in the Old Testament, if you were an Israelite, you could walk to the tabernacle or to the temple and you knew with every step you were getting closer to the physical, special presence of God. And you would continue to walk up and up a hill to get to the top of the mountain where you would meet with the Lord. And so we need to ask ourselves, as they were asking themselves, like who gets to just walk into God's presence? David, who's singing this psalm, remembers when somebody touched the Ark of the Covenant and died because he was not holy and God was. Who gets to just walk and be in the presence of God? How does that happen? For us as believers, we don't have a temple anymore. That's actually a really good thing. We, the church, are the temple. Christ is in us. And when we're together, we are experiencing the special presence of God, but Who gets to feel close to him? How do we get into his presence? Can anyone just walk in? And really, the the way that David answered this question first is he says in verse 2, like, who gets to dwell with God? Well, Well, people who are like God. Godly people get to dwell with God. In verse 2, he says, who gets to dwell? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now we could look through the Old Testament and you would find these words for blameless, right, and true across the Old Testament as description words for God himself. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, you don't have to flip there. Uh, It actually uses two of these words to describe God. It says God's work is perfect 
using the same word for blameless, because blameless is perfection. And it says that his ways are justice, showing us the same word for right. So it's not right from wrong. It's not that God is right-handed. It's that God's rightness is righteousness. His righteousness is justice. His words are true. His, His word is true and faithful. And so Psalm 15 is saying that in order to have intimacy with God, we have to be like God. Godly people get to dwell in his presence. And that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. If I think about my friends, there are people who are like me. You've probably had the experience where you've met someone for the first time, and for whatever reason, you're just really hitting it off with that person. Right? You find somebody, and you just really enjoy that person's presence, and it's probably because they're like you. We throw out in our culture a lot that we live in echo chambers and we're only listening to people who are like us. And that, I mean, that's true. We do do that. But it's not wrong to have best friends who are like us. It's not wrong for you to have lots of compatibility with your spouse. When we are with the people who are like us, often we get more access into who they are. We get to experience them intimately because we're like them or we are growing towards them or we're being mature believers and seeing the differences and letting Jesus cover that. And so for the same case with God, he's saying, who gets to dwell with God? People who are godly. And I love Psalm 15 for what happens next, because if you're like me, you hear, yeah, go be godly. Holiness is good. And then you begin to think, like, what does that look like? Like, I know I should be godly, but how do I live a godly life? Like, what are the practical steps for moving to this abstract term of godliness to actually having godliness in my life? What am I supposed to do? And from verses 3 to 5, David actually gives us practical examples in order to show us that godliness pertains to every area of our life. We're going to run through them real quick. Look at verse 3. The godly person does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. To put another way, God's word is true, and so our words should be true. To be like God in our speech, that requires us to be truthful. To not slander other people, which means to use our words in a way that harms their reputation. We're not to take up a reproach, which actually just means repeating the slander of others. Which means if you hear somebody else slandering another person, even if you're not sure if it's right or wrong and you carry it forward, if it was slander, you're still guilty of that. Which means as James, the brother of Jesus, says, we have to be very careful to guard our tongues. To have true words as God's words are true. Next practical example in verse 4 says that the godly person is him who's in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. We are called, believers are called, to have a correct assessment of right versus wrong. One of the really big accusations that God had against his people in the Old Testament was that they looked at evil things and they called them good. And then they looked at good things and they called them evil. 
And Paul carries this theme in Romans 1, if you're familiar with it, where he says that the wicked don't only just look and do sinful things, but they look at other people doing sinful things and they approve of them, saying, ooh, that sinful thing, that is the right thing to do. And David and God are calling us to see the world through God's eyes, to assess right versus wrong according to how God does. And that requires us to know what God himself says in his word. The next example is convicting for me. It says that the godly person swears to his own hurt and does not change. That God's promises are true, and so we should keep our promises. Which means if we make a promise to somebody, and then another more convenient thing happens, or maybe it sounds more fun to go do that other thing, we're going to be faithful people instead of flaky people. And finally, he says that we are to not put out money at interest and not to take a bribe against the innocent, meaning God is calling us into generosity. Not to give a loan and then constantly remind them over and over again, you are in my debt. I have done this for you. Now do all of these things for me. We're not called to exact tribute, but to give freely to help other people enjoy freedom because God gives us freedom. And so the law in that sense is actually a grace of God. It's been a little heavy-handed on the law because Psalm 15 is telling us to be like God who is perfect and pure and holy. And we're getting a little bit of a glimpse into the fact that the law itself is gracious. And this is how. Let me give you an example. In my kitchen, in our house, uh, Jillian and I have very different ways of cooking. I, uh, well, I'll start with Jillian. She, she understands cooking at a really deep level. And so she's able to look at a recipe and see the ingredients. And as she's doing it, instead of checking, is it an eighth or a quarter t- teaspoon, because that'll make a difference, she's just able to eyeball it and understand based on what I like and what she likes to create this awesome dish based on her knowledge of cooking. I, on the other hand, read the recipe 17 times. And then before I put in the eighth teaspoon of coriander seeds, whatever things I'm not going to taste, I check the recipe another six times just in case it's changed from the moment I pick it out of the container and put it into the pan. In that case, the recipe for me is actually freeing for me. It's a pathway to success because I'm able to do exactly what an experienced cook does and model it for myself. And so I find that the law of the recipe is actually really gracious for me. Otherwise, I'd be eating a pile of garbage. And so God's law, by providing us a way into godliness, by showing us what a godly life looks like, we're able to see that God is saying, I have come to dwell with you. And I want you to dwell with me. And here's the path. That God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us the pathway into godliness. And that is grace. But there's more grace to be found than just in the law. And we need to talk about the very important last thing. And it's that ultimately, our intimacy with God... Our godliness comes from Christ. Our ultimate intimacy with God comes not from 
running as fast as we possibly can, but instead resting and embracing Jesus Christ. That dwelling with God ultimately means dwelling in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a really good student of Reformed theology, you are probably feeling some tension reading Psalm 15 because it is saying, who gets to be in the presence of God? Well, a blameless person and a perfect person and a person who uses their money well. And you're like, salvation by works alarm is starting to flicker off in your head. And you're wondering how to compare this to the fact that we're saved by faith alone through God's grace alone and Christ alone. And those things are 100% and absolutely true. And so let me just say that Psalm 15, if this is what you're wrestling with, Psalm 15 is not primarily about your justification for you students of Reformed theology. Psalm 15 is not telling you how to get right with God so that you can be approved in his sight. That is through faith alone. Believing and trusting Jesus Embracing what he offers, that is where our salvation comes from. What Psalm 15 is telling us, though, is that intimacy, the experience of closeness with God, comes from following God. If Jesus says, follow me, and starts walking down this aisle, and I were to turn around and go the other way, I would not experience a lot of intimacy with him because I'd be going in the opposite direction. And so by being in Christ by faith, we are actually getting to experience real intimacy with God. And this is how. Paul's favorite way of describing you, those who believe in Jesus, he says you are in Christ. That means, what he means by that is you are united to him. You are connected to him. Jesus himself says, abide in me. There's a real connection so that Jesus is able to say, you're actually part of my body. You You are part of me. We are connected. We are united. And so the Bible is able to say that when Jesus died on the cross, you died on the cross. That when Jesus was raised to new life, that is your new life. That what belongs to Jesus belongs to believers, which means that the Holy Spirit of God, which empowers Jesus to follow God, belongs to you, to trust the grace of God's Spirit in order to follow after him. It also means that we can accurately say that Jesus is blameless, and so you, believers, are blameless. Jesus is godly, and so you, believers, are godly. We have the temptation to say, I'm a wretched sinner. But Jesus is godly. Praise be to God. Trust in Jesus. But the moment we say that, we turn around and then continue heaping guilt on ourselves for being wretched sinners. And that's not what the gospel is here for. The gospel is able to say radically and profoundly, yes, you still sin. 100%. You know your sin better than I do. God knows our sins better than we do. But Jesus is perfect. And he gives it to us. And that doesn't change. Jesus' godliness belongs to us because we are united to him. 
We are in Jesus, and so what is true about him is true about us. And so we need to stop looking at ourselves and start looking to Jesus, because that is where the grace of God is found, in Jesus. And so let's look back at Psalm 15. What do we do with the fact that David is saying godliness comes from the law of God? I mean, that's true. Obeying God is how we will experience intimacy with God. But if the Christian life is like a train, we still love trains. They're awesome. I still love trains. If the Christian life is like a train, the train is on the train tracks, and it has an engine. And you could power that engine with all of the fuel in the world, and without tracks, it's not going to be very helpful. That in the Christian life, this train engine, Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God is fueling our life as we're united to him. That as we have Jesus, he is empowering us through the Spirit to obey and to follow. But the tracks, the train tracks, where we're supposed to go is the law of God. And so we will experience intimacy from following after God. And we will follow after God because Jesus is is ours. And so here's what I want to say. You should be godly, but not because you're trying to earn it. Go be who you already are. Jesus calls you godly, so go live out who you are. Jesus calls you blameless because he is blameless, and so go live out by Jesus a blameless life. Jesus has perfect intimacy with the Father, and he gives it to you, just gives it freely. And so go pursue it by following after him. As Jesus says, come, follow me. And when you sin, and when you mess up, and that will happen, I'm telling you right now, throw yourself back on Jesus and remember that Jesus hasn't changed. His godliness hasn't changed. And so trust in him experience the fellowship and intimacy with God all over again. As we are united to Christ, we actually find ourselves in the pleasure and the love of God. As we're united to Jesus, as you are connected to Jesus by your faith, you have God's love. It's already yours. It belongs to you because you belong to Jesus. So enjoy it and live it out freely. And here's what will be true. The very last line of Psalm 15. This is the promise God makes. He who does these things shall never be moved. If we are trusting in Jesus and we're found in him, you will never be moved. Because Jesus will never be moved. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful. And my prayer is that we would leave here encouraged and not downcast. That yes, you do call us into a godly life, but we are fueled by your gift and your grace. 
that we would enjoy the presence of Jesus as we are in him. Lord, my prayer is that we would walk away saying, Jesus does more for me than I ever imagined and praise you. And that we would experience your intimacy because we're trusting in Jesus and not in ourselves. And that by following after Jesus, we would live the life that you created us to live, following after you. Lord, you are good, and we praise you forever, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.